All right, good morning. There we go. We'll be in Matthew chapter 26 today. Matthew 26, starting in verse 1, going through verse 16. As we continue going through the book of Matthew, uh, we have been going verse by verse, and we are all the way in chapter 26. And so if you're joining us just for the first time, um, don't be alarmed. We'll get some recap today um, and get some context, um, but it'll be pretty, pretty straightforward what Jesus is teaching us here today. And uh, before I get into it, I do want to pray. Pray for us one more time. Let, me, let us pray. God, we need you. We need you every hour. We need you this hour. I need you to be with me as I proclaim your word, that I would be accurate, that I would be clear, and that those listening would have ears to hear and that they would believe what they hear. Not only hear it, but they would believe it. And they would be transformed by your word, by the power of your spirit, they would be transformed. God, we need you. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of today's message is Devotion to the Lamb. Devotion to the Lamb. And the key word today is lamb. Lamb. So we've got three main sections. First, we'll see Jesus, the Passover lamb. Second, we'll see his preparation for burial. And then third, we will see the temptation of greed. So first, the Jesus, the Passover lamb. Starting in verse 1. When Jesus had, had finished saying all these things, he then told his disciples. So what did he just finish saying? In two words, be ready. Be ready. Jesus described that how he will go to the cross, he will die, but then he will be resurrected, and then he will be ascended to heaven. But he will return one day to judge both the living and the dead. Judge everyone. And he will either grant you entrance into the kingdom of God, into eternal life, or he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Into hell, eternal punishment. And so we saw that we need to be ready for that return. And how are we to be ready other than trusting in Jesus as our God, as our Savior, and our King? And true trust, we saw, if you truly trust in Jesus, if you worship him as your God, then that will change your life. God will give you a new heart. By his grace, you will start to desire his commands. You will start to love your neighbor. You will start loving your church family. And now Jesus reminds us again that even though he is God in the flesh, he must first suffer and die for our salvation. As he tells them in verse 2, you know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus refers to himself again as the Son of Man, a reference to Daniel 7.13. But instead of Jesus, the Son of Man, sitting on his throne of judgment, sitting on his throne surrounded by his angels, as we saw last week, Jesus will come, in, in, come with his entourage of angels before he returns in judgment he must be first nailed to a cross. He must suffer in physical pain and shame, surrounded not by angels, but by mockers, those who rejected him. And the sad thing, and most sad thing of all, those who reject him are the ones he came to save. His own people will reject him. 
And as we have seen Jesus predict his death before, we know that his death is no accident, and neither is the timing of his death. It is not a mere coincidence that Jesus will die during Passover. The Passover was a yearly time of celebration and remembrance of what God did in Israel long ago when he saved them out of Egypt. You can read about the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12. There, God told the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and put some of its blood on the doorpost of their house because God would come through the land of Egypt and strike dead all the firstborns. However, God would pass over those houses with the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Thus the name of the holiday, Passover. Therefore, when Jesus dies on Passover, he is like the sacrificial lamb from that first Passover. That is, if you believe in Jesus, it is like his blood will be on the doorpost of your life and God will pass over your sins. He will pass over you. He will not punish you because Jesus took your place. He took the punishment that you deserved. That is why Jesus had to die so that he could be our Passover lamb. As 1 Corinthians 5, 7 makes clear, it says, for Christ, that is Jesus, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And it is also sad and somewhat ironic that it will be the priests of Israel, those priests of Israel, those who are in charge of making sacrifices in the temple, the same priests will be the ones who will lead Jesus, the Passover lamb, to the cross to be sacrificed. But they had different intentions. They were not godly intentions. They were not acting as priests they did not see Jesus as the Savior of the world. They did not see him as a lamb, but they saw him as a threat to their man-made traditions, a threat to their sinful way of life. As we read about these priests in verse 3, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be a rioting among the people. So we see here their initial plan was to wait till after Passover. But as we will see, they just could not wait to kill Jesus. They would rather risk the people getting angry than to delay Jesus' death. And they thought the people would riot, and they thought the people would be angry if they arrested Jesus, because many of the people in Matthew 21, verse 9, they shouted praise for King Jesus. They said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They gave praise to Jesus as their king. But as we will see today, and for the next few weeks as we walk through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, even Jesus' closest disciples, those who've been following with him, they will betray him, some will abandon him, and so will the people all around him. They will turn against him. They will no longer say, Hosanna, Hosanna. Instead, they will say, crucify, crucify. Though the priest's rejection of Jesus was calculated from evil motives, they hated Jesus, they wanted him to be gone, we see God working and using even evil motives, even these evil actions. He planned it for good. 
just as he did with the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Because remember Joseph in the Old Testament, Joseph's brothers did not like him either. They sold him into slavery. They hated him and wanted him to be gone. But you know, at the end of the story of Joseph, he, he ended up being second in command of all of Egypt, right underneath the Pharaoh. And he saved whole countries from starvation and famine. And at the end, he says, he gets to meet his brothers again. And he says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Jesus could say the same words to the people who crucified him. He could say, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result not just the survival of many people from a famine, but through his death, he brings about eternal life for anyone who is covered by his blood, anyone who trusts in the blood of the Passover lamb. So if you've never trusted in Jesus as your God, as your Savior, as your King, let today be the day. Trust in his sacrificial death for your sin. Because though we were not there among the people that day, we were not planning Jesus' crucifixion. It was because of my sin. It was because of your sin he had to go to the cross in the first place. As the song titled, How Deep the Father's Love for Us says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It was our sin that held him there. He took the punishment that we deserved so that we could be saved. Trust alone in Jesus. Nothing else can wash away your sin. And if you have trusted in Jesus as your Passover lamb, if the doorposts of your life are covered by the blood of the lamb, that's just the beginning. Just as the first Passover in Exodus was just the beginning of Israel's freedom from Egypt, after they make their way through the Red Sea, they journey to the Promised Land. In a similar way, Jesus' death for you is just the beginning. In forgiving your sin by his sacrifice, he also frees you from the slavery of sin. We don't go through the waters of the Red Sea, but what did we do this morning? We went through the waters of baptism. As a symbol of our faith in Jesus, we are united with him in his death, dying to our old self, symbolized by going under the water, and also being united with him in his resurrection, symbolized as we come out of the water to new life. This new life that we have in Christ to follow him, obey him by the power of the Spirit, is also symbolized, as Paul talks about this imagery of putting out the old bread and taking out the new. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 7. He says, Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new, unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And because he has been sacrificed, because he is our Passover lamb, verse 8, Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice, and evil, but with unleavened bread of insincerity and truth. In other words, if Jesus is your Passover lamb, 
He has also made you new. He has given you a new heart filled with the Holy Spirit, freeing you from your old self, freeing you from the evil that you were wrapped up in, enabling you to live in the truth and follow God's commands. So clean out the old bread of your life. Live in the new life of obedience. And by the grace of God, we would imitate the love and devotion to Jesus as the woman in the next paragraph demonstrates. As we look at the next section, preparation for burial, starting in verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Honestly, I would have been with the disciples on this one. If I were there, I'd have been like, Jesus, you just said, last week we looked at Jesus saying this, that if we wanted to serve you, we would serve the least of your brothers and sisters. Um, but we need to provide them food, water, and shelter, you said. She could have helped a lot of people if she sold this perfume, but it seems like a waste. But they missed something very important, or I should say they missed someone, and he was sitting right in front of them. They missed Jesus. As he explains in verse 10, in verse 10, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me, a good thing for me. Verse 11, you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. In other words, while Jesus is with them in the flesh, their focus should be on him. After his death, resurrection, and ascension, then they should focus on serving the poor and the least of their brothers and sisters. Because until Jesus returns, we will always be dealing with the effects of sin, effects of the fallen world. There will always be someone to help, someone to take care of until Jesus returns. And our hope is that when he does return, he will make everything right. And then there will be no lacking, there will be no hunger, there will be no thirst, no more effects of sin when he comes with us, comes back in the flesh once again. But when Jesus said this to his disciples, he's still with them. He was God in the flesh, and their focus should have been especially on him right now because he's about to suffer and die. As he says in verse 12, by pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Now, this was an ancient practice to prepare the body for burial, to anoint it with perfume. Thus, she is honoring Jesus. And in her honoring of Jesus and devotion to him, there is a special focus on honoring him for his death. Because as we saw, through his death, he made a way for us to live. Through his death, he became our Passover lamb. Thus, at the center of our worship, at the center of the good news is Jesus' death. However, many churches may have moved Jesus' death to the fringes. They don't want to talk about the blood. They don't want to talk about the death of Jesus because it may make people feel uncomfortable. As one writer notes, he looks at different churches that he's been to, and he says, Worship is characterized by upbeat rock music, stand-up comedy, beautiful people taking center stage, and a certain amount of Hallmark Channel sentimentality. 
And he says it neglects the theme of tragedy and death. He goes on to say, death is central to true Christian worship. The most basic liturgical elements of the faith, baptism, the Lord's Supper, speak of death, of burial, of a covenant made in blood, a body broken. And even the cry, we say, Jesus is Lord, assumes an understanding of the lordship very different than Caesar or any other king in the world because Christ's lordship, his kingship, it's established by his sacrifice upon the cross. So as Jesus tells us of the importance of what has just happened and then connects the importance of his death to the good news of the gospel in verse 13, he says, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel this good news of salvation is proclaimed in the whole world. What she has done will also be told in memory of her. And it has. Jesus' prediction has come true. As the good news has spread from Israel all around the world to Zebulun, North Carolina, we read about her. We read about his good news and we read about what she did for Jesus. We remember her. A lot of people work hard in this life so they can leave a legacy. They want people to remember them. So after they're gone, friends and family would remember good things, hopefully, about them. Today, I want you to ask yourself, what do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be remembered? And one of the best legacies to leave, to leave is a life that was sacrificially devoted to Jesus a life sacrificially devoted to Jesus. Because kingdoms, empires, money, possessions, fame, popularity, they will eventually be forgotten or destroyed. So don't run after these things that won't be remembered. Instead, leave a legacy like this woman. The memory of her is intertwined with the gospel of salvation. That is her memory. Is that how people will remember you? Is your life intertwined with the story of the gospel? She honors Jesus and points us to remember his death. It will always be in our memory. And hopefully not just in our memories. But her act of devotion to Jesus should spur us on in our own devotion to Jesus. So what does that look like for us today? Because it will be different than this story. Because Jesus is no longer with us in the flesh. We cannot prepare him for burial. He's already been buried. He's already been resurrected. What are we to do? Three things we can learn. Number one, we can be devoted to Jesus in helping proclaim the good news of his death and resurrection to the whole world. As Jesus says, this gospel is supposed to go out to the whole world. We can help be on mission for that. Second, we can be devoted to Jesus, and Jesus has already made clear what we should be doing until his return. We looked at this last week, and he explains it in verse 11 this week. He says, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So until Jesus comes back, we are to serve the poor. As we looked at last week, Matthew 25, verse 40. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So you want to be devoted to Jesus? You want to, you want to serve him? 
He's not here physically. We can't pour our most expensive perfume on him, but he's not here. He says, serve my brothers and sisters. And number three, we can learn from the woman's self-sacrifice. Look back in verse 7. It says that this woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She gave up something expensive in the service of Jesus. And Mark 14, 8 says it could have been worth up to 300 denarii. That is about 300 days worth of labor. 300 days worth of labor. A year's worth of a salary. Would you be willing to give up that amount in the service to Jesus? Or perhaps you're holding on to the money God has given you. Or holding on to the time that God has given you. Or holding on to the gifts God has given you. And this refusal to give things up for the service of Jesus could be a form of greed. As we see in our last section, temptation of greed, starting in verse 14. It says, then one of the twelve, that is one of Jesus' disciples, the apostles that have been following Jesus, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? In some ways, this account is not altogether shocking, because when we are introduced to Judas in Matthew 10.4, Matthew spoiled the ending for us. He writes in Matthew 10.4, Judas Iscariot, parentheses, who also betrayed him. So we knew this was coming. But the account of Judas' betrayal is still shocking, even though we knew it was coming. It's shocking for two main reasons. One, it's shocking because we have walked along Jesus for 16 chapters for 26 chapters, seeing how wonderful, powerful, graceful, divine, seeing that Jesus is God in the flesh. And Judas saw all of that firsthand. And even more things that we don't even know that happened. He was there when Jesus walked on water. He was there when Jesus fed 5,000 people. He was there to witness the perfection of Jesus who never sinned. That's the one that sticks in my head. Can you imagine living day to day for three years with someone that never sinned? It would be amazing. Despite all this, Judas would betray him. Now, this should open our eyes to the reality of the blinding effect of sin in people's lives. Jesus, the best teacher, the best friend you could have, the perfect communicator, he is God in the flesh, and still Judas chose to betray him. As we reflect on this, we should realize that we can never be a better teacher. We can never be a better friend. We can never be a better communicator than Jesus. His own disciple rebelled. So why do we often think that the effectiveness of our evangelism, the effectiveness of our discipleship is dependent on our skill? It's not. The effectiveness of our evangelism, the effectiveness of our discipleship is dependent on the grace of God. We need God to open the eyes of the blind. Yes, we work hard, we study, we strive to be as clear and accurate as we can, to love people well, to live holy lives. But at the end of the day, it is ultimately the grace and the power of God that causes people to be born again. And it is by his grace and power that they grow to be more like Jesus. It is by God's grace that people will see Jesus for who he truly is. So let us trust in the Lord. 
Pray that God would move hearts. And we also see a warning here of external religion, mere external religion without having a heart change. Because think about it. Judas spent time with Jesus and with his disciples. Everyone on the outside looking in said, Judas is, looks like a good guy. He's with the Son of God. He's one of the twelve. But that didn't mean he had faith in him. The same is true for us today. Just because you spend time at a church building on Sunday mornings, that's not the basis of your faith. That's not the basis of your salvation. Jesus calls for you to trust in him as your God, as your Savior, and as your King. Judas shows that he did not trust in Jesus this way. Judas was like uh, the field of thorns. If you remember in Jesus' parable, in which Jesus explained in Matthew 13, 22, this field of thorns. He says, now the one sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word, who hears the good news of Jesus. But the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Wealth can be deceiving. Greed blinds to the truth. And the second reason it's shocking just how uh, it's, it's shocking that what Jesus, Judas did, because look how much he will betray Jesus for. In verse 15, he says, they waited out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for an opportunity to betray him. 30 pieces of silver was not a lot. He didn't even try to bargain for more. Even Delilah betrayed Samson in the Old Testament for more than a thousand pieces of silver. We see the contrast of the woman who gives up so much for Jesus. The woman gives up her the most expensive perfume. And now we see Judas, contrasted, who gives up Jesus for so very little. And it's interesting as well that Joseph in the Old Testament that we already spoke of, Joseph was sold by his brothers for a similar amount of 20 pieces of silver. Genesis 37, 28. And we see from John 12, verse 4, even more clearly the greedy intentions of Judas in the story of the woman and the perfume, because it tells us this detail. It says, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Here's a, here's a footnote here, verse 6. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. There are people who profess to be followers of Jesus, even today, that do similar things. They are put in charge of the money bag of a church, so to speak, and they steal part for themselves. We must be on guard against the temptation of greed. For Judas was so blinded by greed that he betrayed the Son of God for a mere 30 pieces of silver, not a lot of money. We see this warned against in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. The love of money never satisfies, no matter how might you think it might. Greed blinds our eyes. It doesn't allow us to see and think clearly. And for us today, 
We must be on guard against the temptation of greed and the love of money. And one of the best practices of defeating any sin is to practice its counterpoint in righteousness. So, for example, with the sin and temptation of greed, it'll be good for us to practice generosity. The opposite of greed is being generous. A regularly giving your money away will help diminish the love of money for yourself and for your own security. And in the end, though it is shocking that Judas would betray Jesus, we must not lose sight of God's working things out for good. Just as Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, God used that to raise Joseph to the second in command of all of Egypt. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, and God used that to bring salvation to the world and to exalt Jesus to his right hand. And even though he was crucified by sinful men, he willingly went to the cross, as we see in Philippians 2.8, talking about Jesus, how he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Verse 9, for this reason, God highly exalted him. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. So at the end of the day, who are you in this story? Who do you most resemble? Are you like the woman who gives everything for Jesus? Or are you like Judas, looking at only what you can get for yourself? And if we're honest, and the truth of the matter is, that we were all once like Judas. We look at Judas and we're like, how could he do that? That's every one of us. Before God changed our heart, we were all selfish. We were all greedy. We all cared about more about ourselves than we cared about God. But the good news is that Jesus came to die for sinners like you and me. He came to die for sinners like Judas. The question is, will we accept his free gift of salvation? Will we be prideful like the Pharisees, say, I'm not like them. I'm not like that. Will we trust in him as our Passover lamb? Will we serve him by serving the poor and the least of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Will we fight the temptation of greed or just turn a blind eye to it? Now, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Passover lamb, as your savior, as the king of your life, again, let today be the day. Don't wait. It's worth it. Come talk to me during the song of response so I can share with you next steps and pray with you about following Jesus Steps like getting baptized, as we saw this morning, or joining the church. If you have any questions, come talk to me. Talk to one of your family members. Talk to somebody what it means to follow Jesus. So let us praise the risen Lamb of God seated on his throne. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, that you've revealed to us the good news of the gospel. You revealed to us how we have fallen short and that we have all sinned. We have gone astray. We have done our own thing. We have been greedy. We have been selfish. We have not honored you like we need to. God, thank you for forgiving us. God, I ask that you do a miraculous work today as with any, with any salvation, with any conversion, with any growth is a miracle because it is by you. It is, a, is a, something that you inspire, that you change the heart. God, we ask that today. And God, we also, as we think about our friends and family who are not here, we, we ask that you do a work in their life, that you would put somebody in their path that would share the gospel with them. God, help us be on mission 
Help us. Be, maybe, maybe we could be the ones for somebody else. Maybe we could be the ones to share the gospel, to lead someone into salvation. Let us plant the seed. Let us do a little watering. But we, we know, God, that you are doing the growth. And that's why we pray for this. We ask that you do it. We need you, God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.